the Gospel of John by looking at John 21, 15 through 25. John 15, or excuse me, 21, 15 to 25. Next week, we'll begin a new series entitled Esteem the Church. I have three requests. Uh, I can command you to do these things as a minister of God in God's name, but I want to appeal to you as a brother because of your love for Christ uh, to pray for myself as I put these messages together, uh, to pray for our church as a whole that we truly would esteem the church. And I want to ask you to do your very best to be here every single week for this series. It's going to run about five or six weeks. But let's pray that God will do a mighty work. And I want you to be here because you never know what you might miss. Wouldn't it be terrible to get to heaven? I really mean this. Wouldn't it be terrible to get to heaven and for God to say to you, you know what, that one Sunday you decide to sleep in, you have no idea how that message was going to minister to you. Or perhaps you might hear, you know what, that Sunday I wanted you to minister to another person. I had it all arranged and you didn't show up. John Wilson was saying, I I love to tell people, just show up. Because you never know what God may do or how God may use you. If you just say, Lord, I'm available. Here I am walking into church just saying, Lord, minister to me today. Here I am. Use me. You never know what God may do. So please pray that God will use this upcoming series in our church. Uh, But for the task at hand, John 21 15 to 25. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who had been reclining at table close to him and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Father, I want to pray that You will honor Your Word and that it will go forth with great power, with the Holy Spirit, and deep conviction. Father, may Your Word help us to see more clearly. We confess freely that our vision is clouded, that we don't truly see as we need to see. So we pray that You will use Your Word to give us clarity of vision and to give us direction. Father, if necessary, rebuke us. But Father, also we ask for Your encouragement. We ask that You would guide us and that You would build us up in our Christian walk. And we ask these things confidently in Jesus' name. Amen. may be seated. Last week, we mentioned that it looks like John's Gospel ends with John 20, verses 30 and 31. Because he basically gives a summary and then he gives the purpose for why he wrote his Gospel. He said, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And with that, we think we should close our gospel and say that was a great book. But there's another chapter. And we mentioned that some critical scholars think that chapter 21 shouldn't even be included in the canon of Scripture because it doesn't seem to fit. But it does fit. It is inspired. John 21, as we mentioned, is a sort of epilogue. It springs together all the loose ends, and it brings together namely one specific loose end, and that is the loose end of Peter. Peter terribly denied Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. And reading through John's Gospel, many of the readers might be wondering to themselves, I wonder what happened to Peter. I wonder if his relationship with Jesus was restored. I wonder if he was called again to the ministry and went on to be faithful. John doesn't want that loose end dangling. He wants to make it very clear that Jesus was indeed restored. So that is the purpose of chapter 1, to show us the restoration of Peter. And last week we looked at the first half of that narrative. And we mentioned that in that narrative, we see the grace of Jesus Christ. And we see grace being poured out to Peter in at least three ways. First of all, we see grace towards Peter in the fact that Jesus once again makes himself known to disciples, including Peter. This was the third resurrection appearance. And Jesus makes himself known to Peter and six other disciples. That is grace, to see the resurrected Lord. We also see the grace of Jesus Christ in the miraculous catch of fish. We had mentioned that Peter and the disciples were fishing all night long, and then in the morning, Jesus calls to them from the shore, and he says, throw your net on the right side of the boats, and you will find some fish. And they didn't find just some fish, they found a miraculous catch of fish which made the disciples know that it was Jesus Christ because of the manifestation of Christ in that miracle, which also is very gracious. Jesus not only appearing to disciples, but He's showing them His power and His glory. And then when they come to shore, 
Jesus lights a charcoal fire and feeds the disciples bread and fish. And I had mentioned that this breakfast on the seashore is much more than just having a meal together. This breakfast indicates forgiveness and fellowship. Forgiveness and fellowship. Jesus is saying to Peter, we're okay. I forgive you. We still have fellowship. And I'm going to demonstrate that to you by telling you to sit down and by me serving you so that we can enjoy breakfast together. And I find it interesting that verse 15 begins when they had finished breakfast. Jesus said to Simon Peter. I think that's very important because Jesus is restoring Peter by showing him grace and truth. We saw at the very beginning of this gospel in the prologue in John 1.14 that Jesus is full of grace and truth at the same time. And Peter is going to experience the grace of Jesus Christ and the truth of Jesus Christ in this episode right here. And we saw the grace of Jesus Christ and now we're about to see the truth of Jesus Christ, and both are necessary. But I think it's important to observe that the grace came first. Before Jesus gives Peter the hard word that he needs to hear, he makes it very clear that he's a God of grace. He makes it very clear to Peter that, Peter, everything I'm about to say, even the things that are going to grieve you a little bit, are a result of an environment of grace. That, that's very important. If you have something hard to say to somebody, make sure that you pave the way for that truth with grace. Make sure that you travel down the road of grace before you deliver the truth. That order is very important. Grace followed by the truth. Now, last week we saw the grace. This week we're going to see the truth. And what do we read? Simon, son of John... Do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Okay, three quick observations on this verse right here. I have a question for the kids. Twelve and under. Notice that Jesus says, Simon, son of John. What was Simon's other name? Peter. Peter. Very good, Christopher. Somebody else, 12 and under. Who gave Simon the name Peter? Jesus. Jesus. Thank you. Now, someone else tell me, what does the word Peter, Petros, mean? Someone else. Christopher, he's got all the answers. Look at that guy. Someone else, Parker? It means rock. That's right. Jesus gave Simon a new name. He said, Simon, basically, and I'm paraphrasing, I'm going to give you a new name. We're going to call you Tarak. Because on you, I'm going to build my church. You're going to be the solid foundation. But isn't it fascinating that here, he says, Simon, son of John, not Peter. Calling into question subtly whether or not Peter still is Peter the Rock because of his denial. Now, also notice he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me 
more than these. And the question immediately rises, what does the these refer to? Three possibilities. Jesus could be saying, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these fish? Do you love me more than fishing? Or he could be saying, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these other, more than you love these other disciples? Or, third possibility, he could be saying, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these other disciples love me? I think it is the third one. I believe Jesus saying, Simon, son of John, do you really love me more than the other disciples love me? And I say that because of what Jesus said, and Matthew makes this a little clearer, but this is what we read in Matthew 26. Beginning in verse 31, we read, Then Jesus said to them, talking about the disciples, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So this is a prophecy from Jesus telling the disciples, this is what's going to happen tonight. And then he goes on with his prophecy, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Peter could have just said, Lord, I, I will not fall away. That would have been bad enough. But notice what he says. Even though all these wimpy disciples of yours may fall away because they're cowards, not me, I will never fall away. And he goes on to say, even if I must die with you, I will never deny you. And of course, that's what he did. So Jesus questions him. Do you really love me more than all these other disciples? Which is really an embarrassing question. What, what if I picked out one of you right now and I said, you know, Joe Blow, I won't pick anyone out and embarrass you. Do you love Jesus Christ more than all the other Christians in this sanctuary? That'd be kind of embarrassing, wouldn't it? You're like, hey, it's like, I don't, I don't want to do that. You know what Peter's problem was? He was basing his love for Jesus Christ by comparison. That's what he was doing. He was comparing his love for Jesus Christ with other disciples. I love you more than other disciples. And you know what? We have the same problem. I love you, Jesus, more than these other disciples because I do this and they don't do that. Or because we don't do this as a family and other families do do this. We're not to base our love for Jesus Christ on what other people are doing. But the disciples did that constantly, right? They were arguing, who's the greatest? Right? They, they wanted to know, what's the pecking order, Jesus? Who's the number one disciple and number two, all the way down to number 12? They want to know where they fit in comparison to other disciples, which C.S. Lewis said is the height of pride. We're proud because we're smarter than other people. Better looking than other people. We're proud. See, it, pride itself is a sin that relates to other people. That's what makes 
Pride, pride. We're not proud just because we're good looking. No, we're proud of our good looks because we compare ourselves to others. That's what pride is. And the same thing applies to the Christian life. We're proud of our love for Jesus Christ because it's greater than so-and-so who doesn't love you as much as I do. It's terrible. It's wretched. Jesus is telling Peter, would you stop basing your love for me on what, how others love me? That, that's not the point. You love me and stop worrying about everybody else. That's what he's getting at here. What's Simon's answer when he's asked this question? Do you love me more than these other disciples love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Now, at first, that seems like a proud response. Yes, Lord, as a matter of fact, I do love you more than these other disciples. I don't think that's what's being said here. Now, if just, just for a moment, if you could reach into your purse or in front of you, I'd like you to pull out your Greek glasses. I'd like you to put your Greek glasses on. Larry's got his back there. Uh, let me just give you a, a quick Greek lesson. Okay, just three Greek words. Okay? Three Greek words for love. Eros. I think you're familiar with. You know what English word we get from that? Sexual kind of love. There's philos, which means brotherly love. Any of you familiar with the city known as Philadelphia? That's the combination of two Greek words, philos and adelphos, which means brother. means brotherly love. That's why it's called the city of brotherly love. And then there's a third Greek word you should be familiar with, agape, which often refers to sacrificial love. Now, if you would put your Greek glasses on, this is how you would read verse 15. Simon, son of John, do you agape me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. Now, some commentators have pointed out quite accurately that uh, the Greek words uh, phileo and agape can be used interchangeably. And some argue that we just have stylistic differences here. That's possible. I'll, I'll admit that I could be wrong. That could be possible. Um, nevertheless, in light of the context, um, these changes in the Greek, uh, the Greek usage do make sense to me. So Jesus saying to John, or excuse me, to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you agape me more than these? It would be arrogant for Peter to say, yes, I agape you more than these others. I think Peter is deliberately lowering the bar a little bit. I think he's saying, yes, Lord, I phileo you. I love you, but I don't want to claim to have this kind of love up here. It's obvious from my denial of you that I've fallen short of my love. Now, this doesn't mean that Peter doesn't love Christ. He does love Christ. Brotherly love is a great kind of love. It's good that we have brotherly love for one another. Peter does genuinely love Christ, but I think he is admitting that there's room for growth in my love for you, Lord, and, and I don't want to say that my love is up here because it, it's not where it needs to be. I think Peter is saying, yes, Lord, I love you. You know that, but it's not what it needs to be. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? And here Peter drops, do you agape me more than these? He says, good, let's stop comparing your love to others. So let me just 
asked you flat out, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. So once again, do you agape me? I phileo you. I really do have a genuine love for you. And again, let me emphasize that Peter really does have a sincere love for Christ. Um, last summer when I took a class with R.C. Sproul, he said that every once in a while people will come to him because they want assurance of salvation. They're worried about whether or not they really are Christians. And he said, I'll, I'll ask him this question. He said, I'll ask them, is your love for Jesus Christ perfect? Do you perfectly love Jesus Christ? And I could ask you that question. And he said, invariably, they'll say, no, I, I don't love Jesus Christ perfectly. He said, well, then, then let me ask you, do you love Jesus Christ as much as you ought to? And again, invariably, they will say, no, I, I don't love Jesus Christ as much as I ought to. And then he'll ask them, do you love Jesus Christ sincerely? Even though you don't love Him perfectly, even though you don't love Him as much as you ought to love Him, do you nevertheless genuinely have a love for Him? And people will say, if they are a Christian, yes, I really do love Him. I wish I loved Him more, but I really do love Him. And he, and he said, where do you think that comes from? If you have a sincere, genuine love for Christ, the Holy Spirit brings that about in your life. That's a sign that you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you and that you are a born-again Christian. Love for Christ is not something that comes naturally. It's something that comes supernaturally. And Peter does have that. Even though he doesn't love Christ perfectly or as he ought to, he does genuinely love Christ. Following that, oh, and I skipped something. He said to him, tend my Sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? Jesus brings it down. Do you really have a brotherly love for me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? Another question for the kids. Why do you think Jesus asked Simon three times, do you love me? Why not just once or twice? Why three times, Christopher? Because he denied him three times. I told you he had all the answers. There's a pastor in the making right there. Yes, he denied him three times. Now Jesus is asking him three times, do you love me? As a way for, to make up for that denial as a way to restore him. So he asked him three times. Of course, Peter is grieved by this. Wouldn't you be grieved? Jesus came to you. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Do you love me? Yes, I love Do you love me? Why, why does he keep asking me? I, I love him. Notice Simon's answer the third time. Simon said to him, Lord, you know everything. The omniscience of God. The fact that God knows all things is a great doctrine. Of course, if you're an unbeliever, you hate this doctrine. The late atheist Christopher Hitchens hated this doctrine. He said it made God out to be a cosmic voyeur. He said, God is always watching me. Even in my mind, he's listening to my thoughts. 
and he was bothered by the fact that God was always watching over him, as the Christian said. He didn't like that. And as a typical atheist, he said he didn't believe in God and he hated God at the same time. He despises. But if you're a Christian, this should be comforting. Because even though God sees all our sins and our thoughts which shame us, at the same time, God sees our hearts and He sees even though we sin, He also sees that at the same time, we do genuinely love Him. So Peter says to Jesus, Lord, You know everything there is to know. You're omniscient because You are God in the flesh. You know that I phileo You. And then Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Now notice, three times Jesus asked Peter about his love. And three times Jesus responds after Peter says, I love you. Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Feed my lambs. Now I do think that's just stylistic difference there. What is Jesus saying? If you really love me, Peter, feed my sheep. Three recommissionings of Peter to ministry. And notice the simple implication. If you really do love Jesus Christ, you will love His sheep. Notice what Jesus says. Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Feed my lambs. They're not Peter's flock. You're not my flock. You're Jesus' flock. And God says to me as your pastor, and He says to the elders, I want you to feed and exercise oversights of my sheep, which is much more sobering. I've mentioned periodically to the disciples, or excuse me, not to the disciples, to the elders, we need to realize when we pray to God to build our church, to bring more people into our midst, what we're saying to God is, Entrust more of your children to our care. And and I just find that sobering. Wow. These are God's children. This is God's flock. And and God is saying, now you make sure you feed them. You make sure you, you tend to my flock. That that's serious. That's a serious charge, and it's a serious responsibility. And I want you to know as well as we really do take it seriously and it's one reason why we try to go through the Scriptures so that you can be well fed. I don't want God to say to me, you just gave them milk? That was fine when they were babies, but why didn't you give them steak once in a while? Something they could really chew on. And every message, I, I really do try to do that. Have some milk for the children and then for those who are older, some meat at the same time so that you can be well nourished, so that you can be fed, so that you can grow and mature. Really is important. And I would just ask of you to make sure that you come hungry. Okay? All week I'm trying to get the meal ready so I can serve you on Sunday. Make sure you don't spoil your appetite. Come hungry. I was listening to one pastor this last week and he was saying, just about every Sunday when I come to church, he said, I have, I have one gentleman in my church who says to me before the service, Pastor, I, I can't wait to hear the message from God that you prepared for us. And he said, wow, what a great way to come to church. And I, I pray that you come that way. I hope you come saying, boy, I, I can't wait to hear the message that God has for me today. 
Every once in a while, people will say to me, good message, Pastor, and I'll say, good listening. And I really do mean that. It's a two-way street. It really is. I have a responsibility. It's a high call to preach. I understand that. But it's also a high call to listen. Jesus said to His disciples, be careful how you listen. So I have a high call up here. You have a high call as well. Let's both pray that we do our part. Jesus says, feed my sheep. Verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you. If you've been for us, with us for a while in the Gospel of John, you know that whenever Jesus begins a sentence, truly, truly, or amen, amen in the Greek, or verily, verily, depending on your translation, this is Jesus' way of saying, look at me. Look at me. Do I have your attention? Please, Pay attention because what I'm about to say is very important. Truly, truly, I say to you, and he's talking to Peter, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, things are going to be different, you will stretch out your hands, an indication of crucifixion. You will stretch out your hands And another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. What does that mean? John wants to make it very clear what Jesus means. He doesn't want us to miss the subtle meaning that Jesus has. So he tells us with this editorial comment. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. So John says, Jesus said this to indicate that by crucifixion, Peter was going to glorify his God. You know what Jesus is saying to Peter right here, Peter? I am going to bless you. Hear me. I am going to bless you with the greatest privilege that can be bestowed upon a believer. The privilege of martyrdom. I mean that. The privilege of martyrdom. We've been so influenced by the prosperity gospel. It has seeped into the church. We think the greatest blessings that God could bestow upon us are the big house, the fancy cars, the the closet full of clothes. I'm not saying those aren't blessings from God. But we have bought into a prosperity gospel. We think if God really loves me, He'll bestow upon me affluence and peace and comfort and I won't ever go through hardship. If God really loves me, that's what He'll do. Maybe. Maybe not. I will never forget attending a pastor's conference at John Piper's church. And Brian's going to know exactly what I'm talking about. Listening to Joseph Tsan, Romanian pastor under communism in Romania, thought he was going to die as a martyr. He was staggered by that thought. He, he was arrested. His books were taken away. He was thrown in prison. He thought he was going to die as a martyr. He turned to his wife looking for sympathy. And she said, well, if God has called you to die as a martyr, then you need to go. Which, by the way, is great encouragement. Do what God has called you to do. 
And I remember him talking about Acts 5 as well as one other passage that I'll mention in a moment. But he was talking about Acts 5 where the disciples were flogged because of preaching the Gospel. In Acts 5.40 we read, When they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And look at verse 41. I'll never forget it. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were worthy to suffer dishonest for the name. I'll never forget that as long as I am of sound mind. Joseph's son said very clearly, not everybody is worthy to suffer for the name. See what they said? We are worthy to be beaten for Jesus Christ. In other words, what a privilege. Lord, thank you for the beating we just received in the name of Jesus Christ. And they were rejoicing. How many of us say, Lord, I have been suffering enough. Could it be that I'm not worthy? Could it be that I'm not worthy to be shamed for Jesus Christ? Was Paul? Philippians 3. Please, please turn to this. Philippians 3. Imagine the Apostle Paul, based on Philippians 3, and of course he wrote Philippians 3, but imagine he, he says, you know, I want to expound on Philippians 3. I want to put it into a book. And Imagine he, he said, this is the best life for a Christian right now, based on Philippians 3. What would be in, included in that, that book? Well, according to verse 9, to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the, the righteousness from God that depends upon faith. That this is what I have to have. I have to have the righteousness of Jesus Christ given to me because my own righteousness, based on law keeping, won't cut it. Because the standard is perfection, and I don't have that, but Jesus lived the perfect life, and He can give me His righteousness through faith. That's what I want. And then another chapter might be entitled, I want to know Christ. Verse 10. ESV says, that I may know Him. Paul would talk about how I want to know Jesus Christ. I want to have greater knowledge of Him. I want to have greater intimate knowledge. Not just intellectual knowledge, but intimate knowledge. And then he might have another chapter that's, and the power of His resurrection. I, I want to know resurrection power in my, my life in ministry. And then so far we'd say, Amen, Paul. I, I am with you. But then we get to the next chapter. And I, I want to share in his sufferings. We'd get to that chapter and we'd say, uh, I, I want to share in the fellowship of his sufferings. This is what Paul said he wants. Paul's saying, Lord, I, I want to suffer with Jesus Christ because there is a fellowship with Jesus Christ that can only come through suffering. 
And Paul says, I, I want that. If intimate fellowship with Jesus Christ can only be attained by suffering for Him, I want to suffer. Lord, please bring suffering my way. But he, he's, he's not done. Becoming like Him in His death. What's he saying? Joseph Son said, I've read the American commentators on this verse, and you all spiritualize it. You spiritualize it. You spiritualize it to mean becoming like him in his death, you know, dying to whatever. He says, I think this passage, and I think Joseph Son is right, I think this is to be understood literally. Paul is praying, and it follows the progression, I want to suffer with Christ and I want to become like Him in His death. Paul is saying, I want to die as a martyr. I want to be a martyr for Jesus Christ. I not only want to suffer for Jesus Christ, I want to give my whole life for Jesus Christ so that I can have the privilege of dying for Him. I want to give Him everything. I really do believe that's what Paul is saying. And when he says that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection. It's literally the extra resurrection. I want to attain to the reward that comes to martyrs because they've given it all. I don't want to hold anything back, including my life. I really do believe that's what Paul is saying. And that's what Paul desires. He wants to get everything. That's his dream, to know Christ and his power and his ministry, sharing in his sufferings, giving his very life for Jesus Christ. That's what he wants. That's what he's praying for. And in light of that, again, think of what Jesus says to Peter. You're going to do it. You're going to glorify me in your martyrdom. And I, and I think when, when Peter heard that, I think he had mixed emotions. I think on the one hand, because he's human, he thought, that's going to be hard. That's, that's going to be painful. That, that, is, that is frightening. Knowing that that's, he knew that his whole life from here on out. He knew that's what's waiting for me at the end of the road. Martyrdom is, is waiting for me. But on the other hand, I think mingled in with that, he said, I'm going to do it. I'm, I'm not going to deny him again. This time, I'm going to succeed. And I'm going to glorify God, not only with my life, but with my death. I'm going to be victorious. I won't cower again when a little servant asks me about Jesus Christ. I'm going to succeed by the grace of God. I think Peter had these mixed emotions. Because for Peter, as well as for Paul, Jesus Christ was everything. Everything. Jesus was his life. That's what life was all about. Everything else was incidental. I, I, I find that rebuking. I find myself slapped upside the head by this. Boy, this helps us get perspective, doesn't it? This, this is challenging. This, this is what it's all about. This, this isn't a game. Again, we, when Jesus said, if anyone will come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Again, you know, we, we spiritualize that. The cross is a symbol of death. If anyone will come after me, he must deny himself, sit in the electric chair, and be willing to give it all for me. 
That's literal. Literally, he's saying, I, I want it all. And, and maybe he's saying for you American Christians, it's not going to be martyrdom. But you do have, you have to be willing to just say, Lord, whatever you want. And then what, what happened? After, what did Jesus say after that? Follow me. Follow me. This is what's waiting for you, Peter, at the end of the road. Follow me. Now, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be great if verse 20 began, Peter, having received his marching orders, made a beeline for the Great Commission. It's not what we read. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who had been reclining at table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what, what about this man? Isn't this a perennial problem in Christianity? Jesus says to us, this is what I have for you. Follow me. And having received our orders, immediately we say, well, what, what, what about her? What, what about him? See what Peter's doing? Once again, Peter is basing his Christianity on other people. Now, I think, if, if I'm right, I'm detecting some mild irritation in Jesus' voice here. If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? And every parent with more than one child knows how we love to compare ourselves. You know? Johnny, I need to clean you to clean your room. Well what about Sally? Don't don't worry about Sally. I told you to clean your room. You know? Sally, get ready for bed. Well, well, what about Johnny? He doesn't get to stay up later, does he? Doesn't he have to get ready? And, and we laugh, and it's cute sometimes with kids, but it continues on in the Christian life. It continues on the, in the political arena. Well, what about that guy over there? He's a part of the 1%. That, that's not fair. What about him? We're, we're, we're always worried about other people. What Jesus basically is saying here, would you stop worrying about sister so-and-so, brother so-and-so, and would you do what I'm calling you to do? What is that to you? You follow me. You follow me. Do what I'm calling you to do. This, this is terrible, all this comparison. Wouldn't it be wretched if I spent my whole life saying, well, Lord, what about that pastor? How come he's got a big church? And how come he's got that? What is that to you? Well, I don't like how he's doing ministry over there. Well, you follow me. You do what I'm calling you to do. And whatever your arena is, we all have that. It's a terrible problem. Common problem. Jesus says to every single one of us, I have a calling for you. Discern that calling. Follow Jesus Christ with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Focus on the call that He has set before you, the agenda that He has before you. And do whatever you have so that you can be like a horse with blinders on, not worrying about so-and-so. That's the call. Follow me. 
And then John basically closes the book by taking an oath, as it were. I'm telling you the truth. This is not self-serving. This, this is because this is inspired scripture and we need to believe it. Our eternal destiny may be based on, it is based upon whether or not we believe in Jesus Christ. And then as a way of closing the epilogue, he says, now there are many other things that Jesus did. In other words, he said, I, I could go on and on, but eventually you got to end the book. I could go on and on. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. So let's, I'm going to stop right here. But basically the book ends, follow Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ who is full of grace and truth. How we need His grace and how we need His truth. Father, forgive us. The truth is we're all guilty of worrying about sister or brother so-and-so. Comparing ourselves to them. Worrying about how you're blessing them or not blessing them. When we need to be focused on ourselves. When we need to think about what you're calling us to do. And Father, strengthen us because you have called us likewise to deny ourselves and to pick up our crosses and follow you. May we follow you faithfully. Father, help us to see that life really is all about Jesus Christ and the advancement of the kingdom. Father, it's so easy to lose perspective. Help us to get our perspective back. Help us to get back on track. Strengthen us to walk forward down the path. I know it's more difficult for some than others. But Father, Your grace is always sufficient. Wherever You lead us, You will provide for us all that we need. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.